Life's a plate of cookie dough And you can try to eat it slow But you can miss it out So do it and set it and work out Hey, what's up? I'm Dope's fearless leader and sober entrepreneur, Kelsey Moreira. Each episode, you'll hear raw conversations that feed your soul with entrepreneurs, movers, shakers, and honestly, just plain badasses. These are awesome humans who have navigated life's challenges and are creating a bright future. So let's dig in. You're listening to Dope's Soberpreneur. On today's episode, I am really, really excited to jump into this conversation with John Jackson after being incarcerated at the age of 17, spending 18 consecutive years in prison and becoming a member of one of the largest prison gangs in the U.S. John now works to transform prisons from places of pain and punishment into places of healing and hope. That's something I can get behind. So John, I cannot wait to hear more about your story. It's just incredible to see what you've overcome and even more incredible to see what you're doing to make a lasting and positive change in the world. So with that, John Jackson, a big, giant, warm welcome to Sober Printer. <laughs> Thank you, Kelsey. It's really great to be here. Thank you for having me on your show. So stoked. So stoked. You've got such a story to tell. So usually this part of the podcast is where people are like, hey, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? Good. But at Dope, we're all about really unfiltered conversation and telling it like it is, answering straight up when someone asks, how are you? So I'll start it off by asking you to keep it real with me and give me one high and one low from the last week. <laughs> One high from the last week, we published our 10th book that went to the printer. So it's always a really big high whenever you finally ship your work and get it done. And I would say the low has been waiting for a break. So there's this whole right now, after we published the book, we're in the holding pattern of waiting for it to come back. And it's this limbo of waiting to be done for a quick break and a refresh that I really, really need. That's the low right now. It's just holding pattern. Kind of stuck in this unknown. And I can promise and testament to this uh, personal experience that the reset and the break is so worth it. I just recently took like my first legit vacation in like adult memory. I don't know that I've ever actually (laughs) fully disconnected. And I did. I took a whole week and fully unplugged and it's so worth it. So I look forward to you getting that reset. I have another high. I'm sorry. Today I got the email that my passport was approved. So I got off parole nice. last month and I got my passport approved. So awesome. Where's first? Wherever, anywhere in Europe. I'd love to go ski Zermatt. Yeah. So cool. So cool. That's a big step. Take me way back. Let's rewind things. Like talk me through where'd you grow up? What was life like for you as a kid and kind of the beginning of John Jackson? I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. It's where I was born. I was raised by my mom. I never knew who my father was. I would say when we were around 10 or 11, we, myself, my mom, my stepdad, we all moved out to New Mexico. And the memories that I have aren't very happy. The one that stands out to me the most was when I was around 10 or 11 years old on my way to school, I discovered my mom's car parked on the side of the road. And it turns out that that was her murder scene. So at 11 years old, I discovered my mom's murder scene. And after that, because I never knew who my real father was, I went to live with my aunt. And my aunt and uncle, they, they ended up raising me after the murder of my mother. But my aunt was a drug dealer. She used to sell drugs. And she had me in the car one night when she was pulled over. She had drugs in the car. And she'd already been arrested. I'd never been arrested. I was a 17-year-old kid. So she was afraid to go to jail. So she told me, John, if the cops find them, they find the drugs, crack cocaine, tell the cops they're yours. They'll let you off easy. You've never been arrested. And if I get caught again, I'm going to go to prison. And I did. It was my aunt. I loved my aunt. I didn't want to lose my aunt. 
And I said, yes, I was arrested. And she sat there and watched as I was handcuffed and placed in the back of a cop car to be charged with possession, transportation and sales of crack cocaine. Oh my gosh. Wow. I mean, I just want to stop and say, I'm so sorry for what you went through as a child from the beginning of, uh, you know, even not knowing your father and then having this loss of your mother at such a young age. It's so wild to me to think about how these different paths in life weave people and to hear how much, how many trials you were put through at such a young age, you know, to have to be so resilient at, you know, 10 years old for that next new chapter and getting moved along. And then at 17, feeling this loyalty to the person who did take you in and choosing to take that fall for her. I mean, wow. So that is how you ended up being incarcerated for the long term at 17. That kind of started it all. That it started it all, but I was released a couple of weeks after my first arrest at 17. She was right because I was a 17 year old kid. I'd never been arrested. They let you off with a slap on the wrist. It's your first time. But after that, my aunt praised me for what I did. I, I sought acceptance from my aunt. Like, I didn't have a mother. I didn't have a father. I just wanted my aunt to accept me. So when I got out, she praised me for taking that fall for her and going to jail. And I was proud of that. And I wanted, I think it's natural that as a 17 year old kid, I wanted more. I wanted to be praised more. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted more of that acceptance. So I leaned into the criminal activity. By the end of that year, I took a major leap from taking a fall from her to committing aggravated robberies. And this was sort of geared by her as well or taken on your own devices at that point, just feeling more comfortable with crime in general? I took it on my own, but it was encouraged by her. Still felt like you were getting that positive reinforcement for... Yeah, well, whenever I would bring back a few thousand dollars from a robbery and help the family out with money and give her some money, it was like, oh, wow, good job. Where'd you get the money from? I did a robbery. Oh, good job. Well, keep it up. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's not like, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. From the point, and we'll talk a lot more about this in the discussion, but like this role of the prison system at that moment in your life, what could have been better at 17, for example? They let you off the hook with the quick and easy. What type of intervention or, you know, have you put thought into this? Is there anything that could have changed your path from that moment? I I have never really thought about that. But as I think about it right now, I think that nothing could have taken me off of that path. I had the opportunity when I committed my first aggravated robbery and was in front of my judge, I I was sent to a a boot camp. And the instructors there took me to the judge and said, hey, if you'll let him join the military, we'll take him. When he turns 18, we'll take him into the military if you'll let him off probation. But the judge said, no, we're not going to do that. He's violent. He's dangerous. I kind of think that's what you want in the military, somebody who follows very strict orders and has a willingness to be dangerous, that can be dangerous, to help me channel that. But she said, the judge said no. I felt like that could have been the intervention that I needed. But I'm also grateful that I didn't get it. I'm not proud of the things that I've done or the harm that I've introduced into the world. But I'm actually very grateful that she said no. Yeah, all of it ends up leading you to where you are today. I think you and I had a conversation in the past about that, like regret. What was it? Regret over? Remorse. Remorse, yeah. So being remorseful, but not regretting that certain things happened. Yeah. Uh, What a journey. So talk me through those next steps. Aggravated robberies are happening. What's the one that sort of sends you away for a bit of a longer haul? The last one I committed in Texas, I was arrested. I bailed out. Luckily, it was a stroke of luck. They didn't run a background check on me quick enough. And I bailed out and I split. I jumped bail and I went to California and I committed two aggravated robberies as soon as I got out here. And they arrested me quick out here. And that was it. I was done. I went to jail in California. Within a few weeks, I was sentenced to 16 years in prison. I was still 17. I turned 18 in the county jail. They sentenced me to 16 years in prison. 
And at 18, that's how I was on to a maximum security prison in California. I was 18 years old, a teenager, and that's what started it. And so still in such a malleable stage in your life, you know, there's still so much brain formation happening. I think it's till 25, they say, is like some real actual formation taking place. And for you to get thrust into the prison system at 18, you know, I'd love to hear what was this journey like then to get the gang association. I imagine, like you mentioned with your aunt, you know, wanting that approval and connection and community and family. Like, did the gang opportunity sort of provide that connection for you? The gang gave me that and much more. I had a family. I had acceptance. I had an entire community of people that cared for me. I cared for them. We had structure, which is what I just created my entire life. Structure, acceptance, discipline. And I was able to use the skills that, I, that I've always had, my leadership skills, my natural born hustling skills. These are just great skills to have as a gang member. And I made the most of them. Once I got to prison, I started committing acts of violence to prove myself to the gang and forcing the rules. And that just moves you up in the ranks in the gang. And I moved up pretty quickly as a, young, as, as a kid. And it made it more for me because I wasn't from California. I was an outsider. So I felt the need to prove myself even more than everybody else. Everybody else out here was kind of born into it. I had to really earn mine. And I did in a bad way. I mean, it's interesting as well. You mentioned the gang giving you structure. As an outsider who's never been in prison or aside from the gang shows I've literally watched on TV, I'm sure like many people listening, I just love to learn more. Like, what did that feel like to you to say there's structure in the gang? Like, what were they providing to give you that sense? So just in terms of there are a list of rules and regulations that we have within a gang without saying all of them, but like the basic ones are maintaining basic hygiene, keeping your your housing quarters clean, being respectful to the other members of your gang, no fighting. And there's consequences for breaking these rules. You know, you dress a certain way, you behave a certain way, you have a code of conduct because we, as a specific gang, we want to show that we are presentable, we are professional, we are this, we are that. So that's the kind of structure that I craved working out every day for a minimum of, you know, 30 minutes a day. That's, That's a requirement. It's very similar to the military. Their structure, their rules, and their disciplines for not following the rules. What an interesting parallel to draw here that you almost wound up in the military and then instead sent into the prison system. And you got, in many ways, that same type of discipline and structure. You know, if you could go back to 17 year old John before even the first arrest, what would you tell him in that moment? You're enough. You are enough. Period. Just that validation is what you needed, huh? Just a big old hug. I want to hug you. I want to hug 17-year-old John, you know? What life threw at you just simply wasn't fair and you really just needed to be told you were good enough and accepted for exactly who you are and that you had so much to offer the world and didn't need to go through these trials to be able to do that. But uh, it's amazing to see where you are now. While you're in prison and this amount of time that you were given, uh, the ability to even get into the gang, the proliferation of gang life there, what do you think the biggest flaws are in our prison system? the biggest name a few (laughs) he's like hey how long do you have yeah name a few um the lack of programming the lack of being treated like a human being the lack of access to resources the not all but many of the the culture of the prison guards that they are there to inflict more punishment on you just the, the things i've experienced from correctional officers so you have administration and you have correctional officers administration people who work behind a desk they're awesome. They care. They love rehabilitation. Then you get to the ground floor where the people you work that work with you almost every day treat you like crap. 
Yeah, you're just uh, you are a human being that does not. You are not a human being. You do not deserve any kind of enjoyment. You do not. You're there to be punished, and you're a burden to them for some reason. And perpetuating the us versus them mentality. Yeah, interesting. I think the word rehabilitation is really interesting to look at. This idea that like there are so many in the prison system that will get out one day, and what if that time could be spent on trying to better them as humans rather than continue to push them down and almost perpetuate that feeling you had of not being enough back at seventeen years old? You know, it's like they're just pushing that back down that you're not a worthy citizen of respect. You think it's a bit of like abuse of power for those that become correctional officers? I'm sure we can't say at large across the board, but. I've had amazing experiences with some correctional officers, with more than I had with plenty of officers who were just amazing, supportive. A big problem is, is when they treat you like a human being, they become outcasts. They're mm-hmm. inmate lovers. Got it. Culture of like to be in the in crowd of correctional officers is how sort of demeaning I, or rude you could be to the, to the inmates. They're a gang and they have rules and regulations and they have a culture just like gang members do. And just like another said, rival are, gang. <laughs> yeah, they're just another rival gang. And it's not like that everywhere. I want to just say that it's not like that everywhere. Not every officer is like that. Just like every community, every culture has its bad apples and has its and has its good ones. Yeah. What kind of reform or rehabilitation programs did you see while you were in prison? I want to get into what Hustle 2.0 is and all this awesomeness that you're doing now. But I'd love to know kind of like, what did you see while you were there on opportunities to learn, to enhance yourself, to get connected with the outside world in some way? My first 10 years, absolutely nothing. Wow. And that is till you're 28 then. Yeah, I didn't get my GED until then. I didn't, I didn't even have access to a GED until then. I graduated from seventh grade and I didn't have access to education until 10 years into my sentence. I got my GED, passed it on the first time. And then when I got to Pelican Bay State Prison, we had one class, I think it was like AANA, and it had like a two-year wait list. And that was because the sponsors never showed up. They never showed up. And if they did show up, the COs would cancel the program. They would say, we're short-staffed. We don't have enough staff to monitor everybody in the class. So class is canceled today. Wow. Oh, like gives me, uh, this makes me so sad. Gives me some chills thinking about people wanting to reach out for help, particularly, I mean, like recovery is so close to my heart and thinking about someone in the prison system wanting to get clean and get support and to have that connection, like how important, you know, for those who had even made the decision to get sober, say prior to going to prison, you know, to have that connection to remember you're not alone, to stay affirmed to this decision, because we all know there's ways to get drugs and alcohol inside the prison system. So trying to stay on the straight and narrow and this one opportunity you get is kind of pulled out from under you again and again. It's just horrible. To paint the picture of what it's like is you guys are heavily addicted to drugs and alcohol while they're incarcerated. Hell, that's an escape. It's their way out of prison for just a short period of time. And you make that decision to go to an AA or an NA class. You go stand at a gate and there's a room across the way. You're standing there. It's freezing cold. It's raining. You've been standing there for 10, 20 minutes, hoping your sponsor is going to show up to run this class. And a guard comes over there and tells you, go back to your cell. You know, we're short staffed. We're not running class today. And go back to your cell and go sit there for the rest of the day. And On that issue in particular, how pervasive do you think this still is? Are there efforts in the recovery world to try and get more accessible support across the prison systems now? I will say that in my last few years of incarceration, I paroled in 2019, that, yeah, huge steps were taken. If people want programming now, at least in California, where I was incarcerated at Pelican Bay, the access is available. When I left AANA programs, Celebrate Recovery, they were being run on a regular basis. They had sponsors there every week, running two or three classes a day. So the opportunities are still there. It's not perfect. They still get canceled. It's still prison. 
but the opportunities are there. Yeah, positive steps forward. That's good to hear. I mean, it's this whole idea of just perpetuating the cycle to not help people get back on a straight and narrow or, or to stay on it as far as drugs and alcohol go before they're potentially back out on the streets and have ideally the best shot at staying out and not coming back in. But if you're still in the throes of addiction, it's sort of like writing the finish for you. Well, one thing I would say is while I was in California, one big change I think they made that was really positive is if you used to give a dirty drug test, they would punish you for it. They'd take away your visits. They wouldn't let you see your family. You'd lose your phone calls. They would punish you for it. They switched that from now, if you give a dirty drug test, because they randomly drug test everybody in prison. If you give a dirty drug test now, they assign you to a rehabilitation program as opposed to punishing you. So yeah. if you punish so me, it's like, well, I don't, yeah, I don't care anymore. You already took everything else from me. So I might as well just keep using drugs or drinking alcohol. Totally. Yeah. More pain to numb, right? It's just giving yeah. you another reason to say, forget it. Wow. What's something you wish that people knew about the prison system and those who are incarcerated? That there are amazing human beings in there that have made terrible decisions and hurt a lot of people. But I believe that everybody in this world has made terrible decisions and we've all hurt somebody in some way. And that these people have a great gift to give to the world. Everybody does. And they're still part of our community. You just typically don't see that community because there's a giant wall blocking it out. But there are people who have amazing hearts and can contribute great things to this world if given the opportunity, if told that little phrase that you're enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds me a conversation I had recently about people in recovery and thinking of people in recovery as humans, like remembering that they're a human just like you. And though you guys have made different decisions in your life, at the core, we all feel and breathe and think in many of the same ways. And it sounds to be, you know, it's so true for people that are incarcerated as well. It's easy to just sort of like block that out as like, it's just those people or they made bad choices, you know, lay in the bed that you've made. But I think so refreshing to hear your story in particular, John, today, like being so open about what that was like from you as a child. And I've actually been doing a lot of research lately about trauma, childhood trauma, how it informs who we are today and the way we, our worldview, our, you know, propensity to have a more negative view on situations that occur or to be more triggered to respond violently, et cetera. So it's, it's just this empathy I'm feeling for the situation that many of them were given in their childhood where it wasn't their choice to have the childhood that they did. And they're reacting to the world based on the traumas that happened to them as a child and it's landed them where they are. So what can we do to try and help better their opportunity for the future in the hopes that they get out and can re-enter the world in a more successful light and address those traumas and know that they're enough and, and all of that. So uh, you're doing a lot of this now, helping people in incarceration to feel like they're enough to get skills. So tell me a little bit about Hustle 2.0 and where the idea came from. Hustle 2.0 is an evidence-based, trauma-informed, rehabilitative correspondence program that serves incarcerated people across the country. Started at Pelican Bay State Prison. It's a supermax prison in California. It's where I was incarcerated, and it is where California locks up what they call their worst of the worst. But that was not my experience at all. I don't believe that I'm the worst of the worst. And the founder came up there. Her name is Catherine Hoke. She asked us, a bunch of gang leaders, if we wanted to be known for more than just our scary rap sheets. And we did. She asked us if we wanted to change our legacy, if we wanted something better for the next generation. And we said yes. And we decided to use our voices instead of continuing to create harm and destruction to encourage the youth that listen to us to change your life. That if you don't want to be part of a gang, that if you don't want to spend the rest of your life living in a box prison, then you can do that. But if the gang life, if the gang culture is what you want, you can have it. But just know that we're encouraging you to do something different. You have the skills, 
to be a CEO, an entrepreneur, to be whatever it is that you want. These skill sets that so many top uh, CEOs have, we all have those skills. It's what makes us great gang members and gang leaders is the leadership. So we started writing curriculum while we were at Pelican Bay State Prison. We started writing up, we were very, very new at it, but we started, we started writing up entrepreneurship courses, employment courses, trauma courses. And since in the past three years, we've written 10 books now that are serving in 128 jails and prisons across the country. We get to do things like address trauma from our childhood. We get to address what we call like our emotional suicide, killing our feelings with whatever means it is, whether it's drugs, alcohol, or violence, anger. Those are all masks to cover up our feelings. So you wouldn't think it, many people would not think it, but many guys at a maximum security prison talking about feelings. It's beautiful. I love that idea. I love everything that you guys have been able to make. I think it's really interesting. The curriculum writing in particular, the Hustle 2.0 has chosen to make sure it's in the tone of voice and with the layers of experience that will really resonate with the people who need to hear it instead of like you've described before, you know, this like go read a textbook on it. It's just not going to sink in. So it feels more legit to have it coming from you. This creation of it, like when you're working on something like this, where it's like, how can we better ourselves? And, you know, having to almost ideate the idea of leaving gang life behind of like what it would be like to exit from that. How did this discussion go inside the gang to say, hey guys, like, I think it'd be cool if we educated ourselves on emotions and, <laughs> and entrepreneurship. What do you think? What was that discussion like? Or was there one? Or, you know, how did that departure in many forms end up happening? Well, for most of us, Myself, I spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. I spent four years in solitary confinement, but my, some of my co-authors spent 32 years in solitary confinement, never stepping out of, never seeing the sun or never feeling the wind on their skin, literally. That's not like an exaggeration. They spent 32 years locked in a elevator, basically. And all you have to do back there is read, educate yourself, and work out, basically. So for us, it's not a new concept of educating ourselves, reading, just taking in as much knowledge as you can because when everything else has been taken away from you, you know that knowledge is power. And that is very true. So for us to start exploring our feelings, but having a new conversation about it, of how can we better ourselves so we can better the next generation and show them better because we did the violent thing. We, we talked about that. We've already, we've done the violence and we've learned that we don't get what we want when we act that way. All we do is prove to the DAs or whoever is standing on their soapbox calling us monsters and animals, we're proving them right. When I go out and stab someone, I'm proving them right. I'm proving that I am too dangerous to be outside in society with everyone else. But when I peacefully protest, when I learn, when I learn how to articulate how I'm really feeling, expressing my emotions, then I can get what I want. And I can create positive change in the world through that. So this move to solitary confinement, was that the separation from the gang then? No, you get put in solitary confinement because the prison system deems that you are too dangerous to be with other people who are also in prison. So some of our, one of my co-authors spent 32 years basically locked in a box the size of an elevator because he is a leader. He is one of the top leaders of a gang in California and he didn't do anything. He did not get a disciplinary case or anything like that. It's just other people saying that he is so dangerous that he can't be out. So they lock him in a box forever. And we hunger striked in 2010, 2012 to stop that torture of locking people in solitary confinement. And And did that practice stop? Yeah. Yeah, it stopped. They still lock people in solitary confinement, but they don't do it for 30 plus years anymore. Yeah. So what's life like now for John? How did you actually leave the gang? So it actually started the day before my 33rd birthday. 
I was supposed to go home on my 33rd birthday. But I would start instead. I had another consecutive four-year sentence that I was starting for possession of a weapon. I made a knife while I was in prison and I got caught with it. So that was the first time since my incarceration at 17 that I really, really wanted to go home. I sat in my cell that time, my, that day and cried. I wanted to go home. I started making small changes after that. I started separating myself from my homeboys who were still involved with the crowd and still involved in gang activity, criminal activity. I didn't make the changes overnight, but eventually I came out and I told my homeboys, like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home. And I was ridiculed by some. I was threatened by some, but I was brave slash stupid enough to stand up to many of them and tell them, like, look, I'm, I was once willing to die in a riot or all these other things for this cause. I'm willing to, to die for my freedom and to separate myself from this. And the leaders, the top leaders of my gang, they care about me and they respected me. And one of them told me, like, you don't belong in here. You're meant for more. Yeah. His name's Freddie. He, um, he was my mentor. It's almost like he told you you were enough, you know? He got yeah, that he did. confirmation. <laughs> this man was first arrested at four years old. And for some reason, we have handcuffs that small in this country. But he, he did. He told me, you're a square. You don't belong in here. I don't want to see you die in prison. He also told me, if you make that choice, there's no coming back. You know, you, you'll, we love you. We care about you. We want to see you succeed. And I did. I started changing my life. I made decisions to, when a conversation about gang activity was going on, I walked away. I stopped selling drugs. I stopped selling. I used to make alcohol and sell alcohol. I stopped doing all of that. All the entrepreneurial illegal things that I used to do in prison, I stopped doing. And I started writing with Hustle 2.0. I started engaging in programs. And little by little, I distanced myself more and more from the gang. And all of my homeboys, they saw that. They saw that, okay, you know, that's not what John's about anymore. If, if I want to talk to John, I know that I can go to him to talk about programming. I could talk to him about education. I could talk to him about things like that. But I can't talk to him about gang stuff anymore. Wow. So brave of you. I know you said brave or stupid enough, but whatever combination of that led you to being able to make such a hard decision. I mean, it's really, like you said, willing to risk your life for the chance at freedom and not being willing to stay in and die in a riot or something else inside these walls. So just, I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for you. It's really, really inspiring and refreshing to see that kind of real ballsy risk-taking, you know, I'll just say it took some big balls to step out of a gang and to do what you're doing now. So tell me a little bit about Hustle 2.0's vision for the future, like five, 10 years from now, what do you see for Hustle 2.0? I see our vision being in all 50 states and the DOCs, the Department of Corrections of all 50 states being purchasers and implementers of our program. We're in 20 states currently. uh, So that's, if you're the mad, it's 30 states that we're not in. We'd love to have all of our books, all of our men, women, youth taking our program. We're evidence-based, trauma-informed. We're working to be to be better at that. And we just want to provide healing for people. And so many states are not pro-program. And we want to be able to reach those people who are incarcerated, who are screaming off for a second chance and just want to be, just they, they want that second chance and we want to be able to give it to them. Yep. It's amazing. And thank you for sending me a copy of your latest stuff. It was so cool to see. Really cool to to read. And did you always love to write? Did you write when you were younger? Oh, no. I No. Um, no. Just got Not into it while you were in prison then. Yeah. This is where it goes back to opportunity. Mm-hmm. When I was given the opportunity to be part of the solution, I felt empowered. And mm-hmm. I, was, I, I had a seventh grade education. I, 
I don't know where commas and periods go, but I can edit now. I can I can write curriculum. That's a mm-hmm. very great skill set to have for somebody with a seventh grade education. But it just shows that you give somebody the opportunity or the chance and teach them, they'll learn. I learned when I was given the chance. Yeah, chance to try it, see if you even like it, you know, and, yeah. and just this opportunity to have an impact can do so much. Now that you're out and off parole, so congrats for that. And you're passported up and everything. What support systems do you lean on now to kind of stay on this path and, and stay grounded? I had a, a support group of entrepreneurs, CEOs, and executives who mentored me while I was incarcerated. And they continue to support me while I'm out and mentor me. They're smarter than me. I, there are things that I know more about than they do, but there's a lot more stuff that they know about than I do. So I lean on them whenever I need help, whether it's business. I have my boss, my supervisor, Catherine Hope, Charles Hope. They're my mentors. They hired me day one out of prison. And they, they have been nothing but supportive of me and helping me. And it was a reality check because while I was incarcerated in my last year, I worked in a computer lab at the prison. So I, I'm certified in Microsoft Word, Excel, and PowerPoint, but it's limited in prison. So when I got out here, I had a very hard time working my phone, working my computer. I can't describe the frustration, the anger that I would go through trying to set up my computer to save a Word doc and a Google Drive and locate it later on. That's, I still have a hard time doing that, but. <laughs> yeah, well, I will tell you, you're not alone. My mom calls me to try and find a file every now and then. So <laughs> you're not the only one. When you look back at everything you've gone through and have done so far, what are you most proud of in your life? I'm most proud of stepping away from my gang and criminal life and giving myself a second chance and believing in myself. I love this theme, telling yourself that you're enough. You know, I'm so proud of you too for that. That's just incredible. What would you say is your best piece of advice for others? You wouldn't let anyone else talk to you the way that you talk to yourself. So why do you do it? Why? Stop. Be kind to yourself. <laughs> yeah, that internal chatter, right? It's like, yeah. why, why is she so mean <laughs> in my head? You would never yeah, talk to someone else, else that way. If somebody else came up and talked to you that way, you'd probably punch them. <laughs> Something like that. Throw some cookie dough at them. <laughs> 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 and tell me the cookie dough. You have some in your freezer. You said I, I had some. some dope. Okay, past tense. <laughs> I had some. It's gone. I ate it. I, I think I had the cheese and cherry. Uh, cher- it was like cherry or strawberry. I don't know, but it was, I oh, think it was cheesecake one. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was gone in like two days, and then I uh, <laughs> sent some to my CEO and to my coworker cat, and they did the same thing. So awesome! Thanks for spreading the love. We'll have to get some of this dope into the prison systems and spread some joy through cookie dough in that way too. But. We're going to send some to Nebraska, but they said they can't do that because mm-hmm. the people who are incarcerated would start selling it on the black market in the yard. Maybe in the commissaries and stuff, we could make it legit. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. That dreaming aside, one of my last questions here for you in this rundown is your legacy. You know, if you fast forward a hundred years from now, what do you want people to remember about John Jackson? I don't care if they remember me. I care that they remember the work that our team has created. We have a small team and we've worked very hard to create a positive difference and to change gang culture that is usually generational. So I could care less if they remember me, but I want them to, I want future generations to know that they have an option that gangs and violence, death and prison is not their only path. Yeah. That the changes you've enacted have lived on. It's really your goal. Amazing. 
So next section is going to be about our mental health recipe card. I know this is cheesy. Hold with me, John. So I'm cheesy. Mental- I'm cheesy. Great. I love <laughs> I'm the cheesiness. More yes. cheese. Okay. I love it. So mental health recipe card. I talk about having different ingredients on my mental health recipe card to keep myself grounded. Mental health is so important, whether it's entrepreneurship or just life in general, keeping yourself grounded across at least having a couple of those ingredients running every day. So what ingredients are on your mental health? recipe card? Being outdoors. Uh, I spent most of my life incarcerated. So being outside in wilderness, I live in Lake Tahoe. So getting out, skiing, hiking, biking, kayaking, that is very good for me. Just being able to be outside of a building is one of my main things. And at least once a day, I I need to get out. I I tell myself I'm like a wild dog. I need to be walked. I, I need to get out and just run myself tired. I shut down at a specific time of the day. I tell myself I'm shutting down today at 6.30, 7.30. I'm turning my computer off. and I'm not doing any more work. Nothing is going to blow up if I don't answer that email tonight. It's not. So shutting down. And I would, going back to advice for other people, that would probably be it. Nothing is going to blow up overnight if you don't answer that email. Mm-hmm. It's so a uh, way of life. You have to really keep it ingraining in your brain that it's going to be okay if you just handle it the next day. I struggle with this myself and sort of this coming to terms with that. I want everything to happen as fast as I possibly can. You know, I want to grow dope as quickly as I possibly can, but at what cost, you know, like what can I do to make sure that like I make it for the long run and that I don't, you know, I was suffering from some panic attacks last year and struggling with my anxiety. And it's like, is that worth it? Is it going to be worth it if I get to this big acquisition, but my mental health is like completely exploded and I end up destroying my personal life in the the run of it. So that doesn't seem like it's going to add up in the long run. So I've tried to be really good about this like hard shutoff time. I also deleted email and Slack from my phone. So there's (laughs) talk about the tech, right? I'm like reverting. (laughs) Can we just go back to before people could send me an email on my phone? (laughs) So I don't have for you deleting the, did it create a barrier for you? It's amazing. It's amazing in the little moments for me in particular, like eating breakfast out on a run. I'm not stopping to go and check email really quick. or I'm not getting pinged by a Slack message and I stop my run to handle it. It's just like, I'm out, I'm running, I have my music at the end. You know, it's just so peaceful. I'm having breakfast. I'm just focusing on making the food and eating it. I actually wasn't eating very well because I was so, I was working through the whole meal. And so I just, you know, basically eat so slow that by the time the 15 minutes till my next meeting started, I had only gotten through a bit of my food and would leave. And I was sort of this like never ending uh, science project, I'd say on my desk that my food would be like aging through the rest of the (laughs) afternoon because I hadn't eaten it. But yeah, I'm really, it's such a nice division for me to really say like, I need to have just Kelsey time. I have another question for you. So you talked about you are your best employee, right? So for all your people listening, your question is, if you had an employee who was doing those terrible things that you said you were doing, like not eating, not sleeping, checking all these emails, what would you tell them? I'm pretty Mm -hmm. sure it would be go harder, burn yourself out. Totally. Uh, Even more paradoxical or comical that like dope is so focused on mental health and addiction recovery. And we have really robust mental health policy for our employees. And it's exactly like you said, that I wasn't applying that to myself. I didn't think I was worthy of taking a mental health day. I didn't think I was worthy of like really shutting off and having some boundaries on my hours and timing. And it's just so important. So important. You are employee number one and you've got to make it through, (laughs) through the marathon. So yeah, very happy to say I'm I'm feeling a lot better in that realm. Good. You matter and the world needs Kelsey. 
Thank you. All right. Before we go today, it's time for our raw truth game. I'm going to throw some rapid fire questions at you. This is like a quick get to know you, unveil some raw truths about what makes you, you. Uh, Are you ready? Ready. All right. (laughs) What's your biggest guilty pleasure? A lot of skiing. Nice. I love that you live in Tahoe. What a dream. So awesome. How would your friends describe you? Goofy. (laughs) What's the thing that makes you the happiest? Skiing. (laughs) We have a common theme here. I'm going to guess the answer to the next one. What's one thing you can't live without? (laughs) I would say skiing. One thing I can't live without is, is really... I could live without anything. I've learned that from my past, but I can't see myself doing any other work than mm-hmm. the work I get to do now. And I get to do this work. I don't have to. I get to. Yeah. What's one thing you could live without? Television. True that. We're a household of like, the TV is on every couple of weeks. <laughs> we rarely watch TV. People are like, have you seen that new show? I'm like, what new show? Nope. <laughs> yeah. There's just so much more to do in life. Yeah. I didn't buy a TV until like a year after I'd been released. Yeah. They're overrated. I hate when people have them in their bedrooms too. It's like supposed to be your peaceful place to just sleep. Mm-hmm. No offense to anyone that does, but man, it's just a <laughs> way better night's sleep if you don't have this, you know, light going and noise blaring in the room you're supposed to be so peaceful. So yeah, love that. A uh, song that you sing in the shower. Um, I don't sing in the shower, but if I did, I would probably <laughs> sing... Crap. What did I what did I do that? Oh, for lip sync, the last lip sync battle we did in prison, I sang the song I Know What Boys Want <laughs> by the waitresses. Oh I love it. And I love that there was a lip sync battle in prison. That also just was a great addition <laughs> there. Okay, fill in the blank. What gets you out of bed? Blank gets me out of the bed in the morning. Mm, gets me out of bed. Do the work I get to do. My work with Hustle 2.0. And the last one is what goal do you most want to achieve this year? I want to go skiing in Switzerland. So excited for that. Please send me pictures when you make it happen. I will. I love it. We've been talking about a family trip to Switzerland. Funny enough, we're trying to convince my dad to get on board. He's like, I'm not going to Switzerland. There's no golf courses there. (laughs) That's an excuse. Like, dad, just play along with it. Family trip. Yeah. (laughs) So funny. Bring one of the little like strips of course with a little cut. cut Yeah. Yeah. We'll pack a little travel one. Oh man, this has been so amazing to hear your story, to hear what you're up to. Now that people have heard a little bit more about you and Hustle 2.0, where can they get in touch with you or learn more about the program? Go to hustle20.com or info at hustle20.com. And I would ask that you go there and we have scholarships on there of people who are hungry for a second chance. And you can read why they believe they deserve a second chance. They don't have programs. They're locked in a cell. And that scholarship application is their opportunity. So I encourage you to go to givehustle20.com and browse through the scholarships and find something find something that calls out to you. That'll be the best 50 bucks you ever spent, unless you bought cookie dough. <laughs> I appreciate that. But honestly, this scholarship is a better $50 to spend. That is, <laughs> it's really, do both. I mean, why not? But that's amazing. <laughs> amazing stuff. I mean, I really just extra special thanks for coming on, spending an hour with me. It was so awesome. So awesome to learn more about your story. And thank you for being so vulnerable with me. Thank you for creating the safe space that allowed me to be vulnerable and share. all the listeners out there. I hope you're feeling inspired to go out and make a change in the world. Until next time, I'm Kelsey, and that was Dope's Soberpreneur. Keep it raw, keep it real.
But wait, there's more. Are you drooling after all this cookie dough talk? Jump over to dope.com. It's D-O-U-G-H-P.com to order some of our edible and bakeable cookie dough. You can use code KEEPITREAL for 10% off at checkout. Thanks and have a dope day.